0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the coronavirus and how it is affecting us locally. And good news, the McMaster student has tested negative. The NHL coming up with a protocol for goalies. No Zamboni drivers allowed? And we touch on the U.S. Democratic race. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, a potential coronavirus case has emerged out of McMaster University and raising concerns. You can understand why, but the great news is as the school has unveiled that the student has tested negative. Uh, You can imagine the relief uh, all around the campus when that news came out. Let's bring in Andrea Farquhar, Assistant Vice President Communications, McMaster University, and is with us now. Andrea, how are you? Hi, Scott, how are you? I'm doing very well. Andrea and I worked together many, 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 many years ago. Uh, and then Andrea got smart, she got out.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> that We can count those years and decades, I'm afraid to there, say. Uh, has it
0: been that long? Oh, my it goodness. Has. All right, Andrea, uh, first of all, give us an update here, the good news, the, the student has tested negative.
1: It, it certainly was good news. Um, we had been told that we should get a result early in the week, and it, and it came this morning uh, with the student letting us know that they had tested negative. And so that, that was certainly the news that, that the student wanted to hear and it's also always very helpful for the campus community and our broader community as well to to know that that, that case is, is uh, confirmed as negative.
0: When this first uh, came out in the news that someone had uh, was being tested, what was it like around campus? Um, give us an, an idea of perhaps anxiety or, or, or what the concern was.
1: Well we were notified on Friday and uh, applauds to the student for for letting us know. That was great. That's really important, actually, that people that uh wherever it is they work or go to school or live that they they notify them if they are being tested so that was really helpful uh it meant as well that we could quickly come together um, as as a university and determine okay what what do we know what do we need to be thinking about what do we need to do and so we started uh, communicating that message out the friday evening um which was great we updated the messages of saturday and sunday uh, just so people felt like they were getting the information that they, that they needed that we were able to share. And also to be able to share what, what we were doing, such as the extra cleaning that we were doing at, at one of our buildings. Even though all of the health authorities say uh, you actually don't have to do that level of cleaning, but we wanted to provide some comfort for people just to say, you know what, we've we've taken extra precautions um, to make sure you feel comfortable um, being in the building.
0: Uh, Obviously, a MAC, a a big campus, are you concerned that sooner or later you may get another case? This may come up again. Anything learned from this process?
1: Well, I would want to say we haven't had a case. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, we're seeing those numbers increase. Even today, the numbers in Ontario are increasing it's impossible to predict where those cases will be. I think the important thing is that we're as prepared as possible. So we actually activated our crisis management group back in January, uh, the middle of January, to begin looking at this. We started getting a website up, putting out some information. Um, we have certainly been meeting more frequently uh, in the, the recent past. Uh, and we met uh, over the weekend. We met again this morning. Again, just to make sure that we're on top, the university has a pandemic plan. We also have um, some pretty extensive business continuity planning tools that we use and that we encourage people to, to take a look through and to make sure that they're prepared within their own units. So to me, you never know what might be coming around the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it may be this, it might be something else. And so to be as prepared as we possibly can for any of those kinds of circumstances is, is what's really important.
0: Has this changed behavior on campus in any way? Are students reacting in every way? Even though now the threat is over, the the case that was being tested has tested negative. There is no coronavirus at Mac at this point. Uh, has it changed behavior in any way?
1: It might be a little hard to determine that. I was here right over the weekend, and I'd say it was very much a normal weekend. Um, there were uh, people on campus. They were going about their business. Uh, we let people know it was business as usual, I think the anxiety level generally, and it's not just at the university, it's across our community, it's across the whole country and around the world, anxiety is is rising um, as the numbers increase, as the spread increases. That's natural. That's human nature as well. I would encourage everyone to kind of get the facts, um, understand the best way to keep themselves safe. And I know it sounds um, like a simple thing, but that hand-washing advice that we give our employees students and, and staff here as well that our experts say this is just critical to people being able to to keep themselves healthy and to limit the spread of something like a virus. Um, It is really important. Um, And knowing that, uh, you know, you have people who you can reach out to. So if you aren't feeling well, or if you came back from one of of the countries that that are in some of these zones, what do you need to be thinking about? How do you need to monitor your health? And if you are given advice to self-isolate, then follow that advice.
0: Obviously, we have to uh, side on uh, err on the side of caution and such, and as you as you said, use preventative maintenance along the way. But are you surprised the ang- the anxiety that this has caused, considering it isn't as fatal as SARS, and some say even as fatal as as the common influenza? Uh, the concern is the speed at which it spreads from human to human. Are you concerned? With, are you uh, surprised we are where we are with that anxiety?
1: Uh, you know, I I've, I've went through SARS and H1N1 here at the university, and in some ways, um, I think what made those more challenging was that we hadn't had something like that for a very long time, and so it was all new. Um, we also didn't have the communication tools that we have now, mm-hmm. so information can both on the negative side get out quickly, especially if it's the wrong information or if it's inaccurate or it's just fake, um, that can get out quickly. But where these communication tools really help is that when we're trying to give out factual information, we can reach people very quickly as well. We spent a lot of the weekend, actually, we had some, some great people who came in to monitor um, a lot of our social media channels as well as other places to make sure that we were able to answer questions or correct information that was out there. So I th- I think in some ways those communication channels can can heighten the anxiety because we instantly know when there are new cases reported in italy or whatever other country or what the world health organization is talking about we can access that instantaneously but but we can also access accurate information and i think for for everyone being able to kind of take that that perspective is is a really um effective way of dealing with these things which uh, you know, for, for everyone, it it starts to become something that you do think about uh, a lot. And and I said, that's completely expected. That's what happens when these things um, start to occur. Um, but the calmer people can stay, the more focused they can stay on, on, on the facts and taking care of their health and making sure people understand how to do that, then we'll all be in a much better spot.
0: What about feedback from students, Andrea? What about uh, the response on how this has been handled, their concerns?
1: Um, I think on the whole, uh, people are finding the information that they need. There are certainly some people who are concerned or at least asking questions. Are my classes being held? Uh, those sorts of things. And, and they are. Um, it is. Business as usual. Classes are continuing. Research is continuing. Those sorts of things. The one piece where some students are being impacted, particularly, is whenever the federal government increases a risk level in a country to level three, um, we have some policies that kick into place. So we write currently, this, the countries under that advisory, um, I believe, are China, South Korea, and now Northern Italy has been put on that list as of today. If you are going to be going on exchange as an undergraduate student to any of those places, you are no longer allowed to go. Mm-hmm. That's that's a policy that's been in place for, for some time, and we're guided by what Global Affairs does. So what they put a country on that L3 list or above, this policy kicks in. Um, we're reaching out to students who may be planning on going on exchanges or are already there to make sure they have information. Um, we also ha- belong to something called International SOS, which is available to all of our students who, who might be out um, on something connected with the university, and that's another resource for them to get information. Um, so those are, those are the particular pieces that actually do have impact because Global Affairs has rated these countries at a level three Um, We do point people um, and we watch carefully what is happening out of the federal government, particularly uh, with global affairs as well as the Public Health Agency of Canada, as well as the advice that's coming out of the province for health. Those are the the very best sources of information, and that's what guides any of the actions that we would take at the university.
0: Andrea Farquhar has been with us, Assistant Vice President, Communications, McMaster University. A potential uh, coronavirus case that uh, was suspected at McMaster University has now been, the student has now been uh, tested, and the results are negative. Andrea, thanks so much for the time and Insight. Much appreciated. Good luck with this.
1: Thanks, Scott. Take
0: care. You too. The coronavirus impacted daily life uh, over all over Asia and all over the world when you think about it. Matthew Fisher has just returned from Japan. He is a fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and in the past has uh, been a foreign correspondent for the Globe and Mail and Postmedia. And he is with us now. Matthew, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Uh, Trade down, travel down, business down, economy, we're hearing stories. Um, Are we overreacting to this virus, considering although it spreads extremely quickly, it's not as fatal as, say, the common influenza?
2: Well, I'm not a medical person, and I think that's a more appropriate question for a medical person. But uh, just uh, as a human being, I think we need to be ready for the worst and too often we get caught with our pants down and things like this because we slough them off. Uh, already in Toronto, what was it, four new cases yesterday, uh, the rate in the United States is going up. Uh, Korea suddenly had an explosion from almost nothing to uh, 3,000, 4,000 cases in a couple of days. And 2% of the people die, at least. Maybe it's a bit higher than that. Well, it, if as some British people are uh, prognosticating, these are British medical experts, up to 70% of the population will get this in the United Kingdom. You're talking over a million deaths, even when you're dealing in these tiny percentages. So I, I say yes, worry about it, be prepared, don't panic, uh, but uh, do more perhaps than Canadians are doing.
0: Uh, Surprised that we seem to be getting this second wave now, these other sort of cluster uh, infections in various uh, uh, places, including here in North America.
2: Yeah, It's surprising to us, but the medical experts, if you go back and look six or eight weeks ago, did expect this to happen. Uh, even when there were terrible problems with the bubonic plague and things like that, people didn't move around. But by the First World War, they were moving around. And that's how the Spanish influenza epidemic uh, crossed the Atlantic and went all over the world back in uh, 1918 and 1919 as the soldiers returned from that war. Well, today, everybody flies everywhere. And one of the first things we can see economically, Scott, is that the airlines are taking a tremendous hit. Uh, not only is, for example, Air Canada not flying anymore to China, but that is just a, a tiny fraction of the flights that aren't taking place. When I was uh, at the airport in Tokyo yesterday, the whole board is listed with cancellations. I read this morning that Lufthansa has 23 wide-body jets that are not flying right now uh, because uh, there's nowhere they, they can fly those jets to because of the problems in Asia and. Uh, these are all the knock-on effects. All those people getting, uh, losing their jobs. Russia is dependent on selling its fuel. The price of fuel is way down. The Russian economy is going to have, uh, uh huge problems from this in the next six to twelve months. So there are consequences beyond whether you should wear a face mask and whether you should wash your hands a lot, which uh, is taking place in Japan. About 90% of the people now wear masks and uh, these uh, places where you can clean your hands uh, are ubiquitous, you know, with these uh, liquids that you put on that uh, right. are said to disinfect them.
0: Uh, how is this, what we're seeing and how this is changing life in Asia, is this a sign of what we will see in North America in a few weeks?
2: Quite possibly. There have been tremendous number of cancellations of conferences, events, uh, uh, the baseball season in Japan, baseball's huge in Japan, uh, nothing's happening. The sumo uh, tournament at Osaka is being played without anybody in the stands. Well, can you imagine in North America, and it may be coming in the next few weeks, that the NHL playoffs uh, are all played before empty houses or don't mm. take place at all? And what people uh, would think of that. Don't forget the NHL uh Stanley Cup playoffs were uh, not run in 1919 because of the Spanish influenza epidemic.
0: What about the Olympics in Tokyo? Uh, obviously, you just have come back from there. Your thoughts, and how does this compare to times you had been there in the past?
2: Well, uh, much different. Japanese people wear masks more for illness than uh, North Americans do anyway. 10 or 20% of the people always have a mask on in public, but it's up at about 90%, and it does dominate every single conversation whether it's black humor or points about you can't do this you can't do that people of course in japan bow more than they shake hands so that is one thing they don't have to worry about whereas in europe now apparently uh, in france and germany there are all these uh, requests that people not uh, shake hands so uh, that is one very big part of it uh, the japanese uh, olympic games There's big talk of cancellation. They spent $26 billion in that. The the date that they have to decide by is the end of May. That does give them a fair bit of breathing room. But that will have huge consequences. And even if they are held, how many people will want to fly to Asia? The flights to Asia are those that still go. There are a lot of them, but they're emptying out too. What will the scene be like in a month or two? Will Canadians be flying uh, in Canada as much as they are today? just domestically, let alone internationally. I think these are very big questions. And if all the trends elsewhere are accurate, this is going to have a profound effect on Canada, too. Whether we overreact or not, I certainly don't know. Uh, but uh, I think there's going to be an effect we haven't thought about. In Japan, all the schools are closed for the next month. Imagine mm. how that would affect Canadian wow. daycare plans. Yeah,
0: that's incredible. Uh, we certainly see how far we have come in the several weeks, even a couple of months, that, that we've been talking about the coronavirus. What will life be like one month from now, six weeks from now? in North America?
2: Well, if it is like Japan today, and Japan has uh, several hundred active cases, aside from all those on the Diamond Princess cruise ship, uh, and they've gone up a lot, or or Korea, which exploded from almost nothing to to about 4,000. If that trend continues here in six weeks, I expect all the conferences that anybody was going to attend will be canceled. An awful lot of sports events will be canceled kids sports events will be canceled anywhere people gather the big one though of course would be if they close the schools. uh if that happens uh that has huge effects just on personal family lives uh but uh it's a danger fortunately one thing they seem to say statistically is kids are not really profoundly affected by Mm. this it is older people and that would be a blessing of course if if Kids don't die as a result of this. And it's people like me who are, uh, uh, who are way up there and have already lived most of our lives.
0: Um, fascinating seeing pictures from space, images from space, showing how the pollution has dropped over China as a result of them closing industry
2: down. Those were really graphic images of before... And after, and it tells you what's happening to the global oil market right now and why there could be repercussions for Russia, for Saudi Arabia, uh, very, very serious ones economically. It may be good for the planet in the short term, but of course, once this has run its course, I expect those Chinese factories will be up and going bigger than ever. And China's per- per- producing prodigious amounts of pollution because so much of their pollution is from coal-fired plants unlike in North America.
0: Matthew Fisher has been with us, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and has just returned back from Japan. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for the insight. Much appreciated.
2: Thank you for having me, Scott.
0: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. General Manager's Meeting, NHL. One of the items up for discussion is the Emergency Goalie Protocol, which saw, of course, uh, David Ayers... Zamboni driver by day, goalie by night. I don't think he's really a Zamboni driver anymore, is he? Uh, Skyrocket fame after helping the Carolina Hurricanes defeat the Toronto Maple Leafs. It was great watching him get inducted into, or a stick and such, get inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. So it's bad enough that the Leafs had to endure all this and get beaten by a a, a guy who's not even a goalie, not even a professional goalie. And uh, now it's... Enshrined in the Hockey Hall of Fame because I'm guessing somewhere in there it says against the Toronto Maple Leafs. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Shore Sports co- uh, Show, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now, Scott. You thank you for the time, as always, much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well, and you? I'm well, thanks. So, what is the protocol right now for backup goalie? Would it, would every, well, there has to be somebody in the building that can play.
3: Yes, there has to be someone there as a third goalie who would be available for either team if either team's both goalies went out, and theoretically, they are supposed to be someone who has some capability of being a goalie. So, you know, you or I couldn't just go into a lottery and say, hey, I'm a goalie today, and Um,
0: It's not like you're in the stands and someone says, is there a goalie in the building?
3: Exactly. It's not (laughs) like at baseball games when someone shows up with their glove, and so you go, oh, he's ready to go. (laughs) Um, Which is always great when it's kids who bring their gloves. I always laugh when adults. And the worst one is, I was at at the Canadian Open this last year in Hamilton. There was a guy walking around wearing a golf glove. And I'm thinking... What possible reason could you be wow. wearing a golf glove for? They don't actually look for people on the, in the gallery. Go, Oh, someone dropped out. You're in, man. Go. You got your stuff. Good. Go. No, it's, it's, you've got to be. Maybe that was uh, to hold his beer. Maybe. May keep, <laughs> right, keep it cool and keep his hand <laughs> from getting wet. Uh, you're supposed to be somewhat competent. And, uh, and that becomes, you know, like different flavors as you go around the league. And the irony of this one. Because, you know, in some places where they don't have the hockey culture you would say, well, it's gonna be harder to find someone who has that kind of background. That's what made this so ironic, that in Toronto of all places, you would have thought Toronto the third goalie would have been some guy who'd played high levels of minor pro and there was probably somebody like that in the stands. Could have been. Could have been, but that's not the guy that they had pegged. Wouldn't it be
0: funny if you're sitting up there and you go, and you're like a retired guy or whatever, or just out, or maybe just been quite, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm more experienced than that guy.
3: It would be not at all surprising if that was the case, that some guy was turning around going, wait a second, how do I get on this list? Because yeah, as I say, especially after the first two shots, I could stop those. <laughs> so I mean, look, after those first two shots, God, oh, I had the same save percentage as even air. <laughs> so you literally could have brought in anybody, yeah. and for those first two shots, it would have made no difference. So how look, are they going to? The how, how are
0: they going to the change the? P- doing it? How do they change the protocol here? What are they going to do? Are they going to actually have someone employed? Because let's be honest, how often does this happen?
3: Very seldom. And here's the problem I have with this. So. You may remember that about three or four years ago, there was a guy in the Chicago Blackhawks game who had to go in, and he played for like seven or eight minutes. And the thing about that story that was so cool was he had to make some unbelievable saves, and he did. And he was, a, as I recall, it was a college goalie, a retired or former college goalie, but that guy, like he went in and he was suddenly under under fire and made some great saves. And But since then, I don't believe there's been another one until now. And prior to that one, I honestly can't remember the one before then. So the problem with this, Scott, is it's like a lot of things. If something happens, and now we're going to way overreact because, yeah. well, it's going to happen again. Yeah. And here's here's the thing with this story that, um, that I think of. Now, I'm going to test your memory for a second, but if you can think back to the Sydney Olympics for a minute, uh, or even before the end of the Calgary Olympics, but Sydney in 2000, in the swimming event, there was a guy from Equatorial Guinea named e- Eric the Eel Musambani, and if you go back before then, there was Eddie the Eagle Edward.
0: I was yeah, in Calgary Coucher. for '88, so I remember Eddie the Eagle I actually. Matter. All him.
3: right. Well, yep. both of these guys were hopeless, but they were the best in their country. Eric the Eel in Equatorial Guinea they didn't they only had one pool in the whole country, yeah. and it was in a hotel apparently, and it was yeah. only like 20 meters long. Same with the Jamaican okay.
0: bobsled team.
3: That's another perfect example. So what ended up happening was he I mean he almost drowned in the pool. He was in there so long. Like he took forever to finish his race. But the crowd loved it. And when Eddie Edwards was jumping, the yep. crowd loved it. There was no chance he was gonna win. Yeah. And and there was a greater chance he was going to cripple himself by landing on his head.
0: No, he was but, a huge celebrity in Calgary and like he would go sure. on all the local shows and everything, yeah.
3: But those guys and Jamaican Bob Slay less them because they were actually pretty good. Um those two guys as a result of that, the Olympics changed its qualifying rules. So you can't just be the best, you know, curler. Yeah.
0: In there's a minimum standard.
3: Hawaii. Now you have to be, you know, there's a minimum standard. And uh, to me, you know what, it takes a lot of the humanity and a lot of the fun and a lot of the fact that at the, at the, at the bottom, at the core of this, it's still sports. It's still supposed to be fun. And so for the, the one time every four or five years that some guy is going to end up having to come into a game in the nhl and beat the emergency backup goalie do do we really need to now be making sure that every game at every arena has a guy who's played ahl hockey every
0: race fan's going to start taking their helmet to the track if you're coming from my world so what will be the new protocol
3: here well that's probably going to be it but there will be a certain standard so you'll have to have a So it will be like the Marley.
0: so it will be like a Marley's backup or a Marley's goalie well, that would be there Well,
3: probably not because you're going to because it's got to be for both teams. Like this is what made this one so unusual. He was a least employee basically. Yeah. Um you're going to have to you have, have company, your own. But how do you so what do you a do you, age, so do you, you have no to athletic. what if you're traveling though? Do you have to bring the guy with you? Well, no no well maybe. Uh, maybe they'll make that their new thing. I think it'll be a a third goalie, but this the the baseline will be higher. That this guy can't be like a forty-two year old guy who's playing no. But what if you're in an
0: away game, though? I mean, there would only be one per building, and I would you, you can't have your own with your own team because then they'd have to travel for, with you, right?
3: Well, that's what I mean. So yeah. in each building, there's going to have to be some independent guy who yeah. isn't an employee who's. Played at a certain level. I mean, it gets now it gets you're talking a beer league guy, though. Yeah, but it gets <laughs> re- it gets really complicated, and for what? I mean, and, and yeah. here's the best part about, or not the best part, but here's the thing about this: everyone's bent out of shape about this because, and you know, I understand why. In Toronto, it was humiliating for Leafs and for Leaf fans. Sure. Flip the table for a second. Let's say this guy had had to come in because the Leafs had lost both their goalies, and this guy comes in and he wins the game for the Maple Leafs. This guy would be the all-time legend hero. He already is. But he would be, beloved Leaf fans would be like screaming for this guy now. It's just that it went against them. But I I don't, I, I just look at this and I go, man, it seems like you're spending a lot of energy and a lot of time and a lot of hot air over something that almost never, ever happens. And when it does happen, look how much attention The NHL got. They were on Good Morning America. They were on the Today Show. They were on the BBC. They were every single place. ESPN, which basically ignores hockey, gave them top billing. You couldn't pay for the kind of attention the NHL got. Yeah. Why would you want? That's a good point. The once every five or six or eight years this is going to happen. Why would you want to tamp that down?
0: But again, can picture if this was a game, well, not that this was an important game, because you're getting towards playoffs, it so it was very important, but you know, you bring up a valid point. What if someone has an interest in the other team, then all of a sudden, oh, you know what, it's kind of easy to lose because you're not a professional anyway, and it works in favor of your home team. I mean, you can see the, the issues that could arise from this.
3: Sure, it's going to be a very easy fix in a place like Toronto because there's a million guys who could qualify and yeah. be in the stands. It's going to be much more difficult in some of the less traditional hockey markets where you may or may not have those guys around. You may have to now pay to have someone that I don't know, but it. it, it okay, just, he's
0: lousy at hockey, but he's a great baseball player, so he yeah. might be able to do it.
3: <laughs> it. It it just seems like such overkill, and and, and again, this Scott, this was a. Despite the fact that it sucked for Lee fans, it was a joyous yeah. story. It's a good story for the NHL. It got so much play for them. It got so much attention for them. It, it just looks like you're throwing a cup of cold water on a terrific story. If this becomes habitual, if we start seeing this more and more and more, but here's the other part about this it seems even less likely that it would happen more often because the rules in the NHL now about making contact with the goalie. And yeah, and like, and let's, else,
0: let's remember what took the second goalie out for Carolina. My God, he was out by uh, the face-off circle by that time when he got nailed. I mean, exactly. sheesh.
3: Exactly. This is not a case where, you know, back in the 70s, Back in the 80s, remember when Billy Smith was playing for the Islanders or Ron Hextall for the Flyers where the goalies were getting into brawls all the yeah. time and guys were crashing the net at full speed? Those days are gone. So the chances of this happening. Now, having said that, you, you know that because we're talking about this and everyone else is talking about it, you know it's going to come up again in the next like couple of weeks. Another incident will happen. But then we won't see another one for, for months. That's just Murphy's Law. But it just it doesn't happen. So leave it. It's okay. It's okay. I, I don't... Necessarily, but the, the coach form in of sports, everything has to be so unbelievably serious at yeah. all times. It's still a game, that's a good point.
0: Uh, and how, uh, and we got like 10 seconds left. How bad is it that this is all in the Hockey Hall of Fame? And even if a Leaf fan or a Leaf player, uh, you're there because the team that you the Carolina Hurricanes played against is there, so now, so now it's more memorialized at the Hockey yeah, Hall of it, Fame. It
3: bites, but you know, if you're a Leaf fan, but again, flip the tables around and say, if this guy oh, yeah. had been playing for the Leafs, yeah, th- the they would have a street named after him in Toronto by now.
0: He'd be signed up. He'd be part of the roster. Uh, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, every weeknight right here on CHML and sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Will protest repeat itself with Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion? Uh, and on that note, we have a clip. Uh, and of course, you've heard that uh, over the weekend, there was an agreement, a sort of a draft agreement that uh, was reached between uh, the wet sweat and hereditary chiefs that were against the pipeline and um, and provincial members of provincial and federal governments. Uh, and we don't know much about the actual deal itself. Uh, however, uh, unexpectedly, it seems to be good news. However, uh, it doesn't really, at this point, we don't think it's really involves the pipeline or what from what we know, the hereditary chiefs still are against. Uh, the pipeline, but this uh, proposed uh, uh, arrangement hailed as a milestone—that's uh, that was really, uh, finally reached after three days of talks. Uh, British Columbia Indigenous Relations Minister Scott Fraser says the ministers and chiefs still have a disagreement over the pipeline, which is a coastal, a coastal gas link project and is provincially approved and permitted. Here's more on that.
4: We are developing a protocol here with uh, the uh, Office of Wet'suwet'en, a process to recognize rights and title for the future. We've done that in three days and three nights, which is something that should have been done 23 years ago. Uh, That will allow us, uh, I ask uh, for for, uh, some space and calm for us to continue that good work.
0: All right, to talk more about what this means to everyone else, let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and with Canadians for Affordable Energy, and with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. Much appreciated.
4: Good afternoon, Scott.
0: Uh, obviously, there's lots of layers here, too, as well. Before we get to the actual pipeline portion of this, um, is are these problems solved in three days?
4: No. Uh, perhaps what has been done in three days should have been done three decades ago, but uh, that's... Uh, an introspection uh, and you know hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, the reality, I think, is that this doesn't bring us any closer to the disputes that we've seen. Uh, the uh, examples of anarchy, mob rule, coming across the country, and of course, uh, uh, some issue as to whether or not uh, the pipeline that is the natural gas Coastal Link pipeline will actually ever get built uh, in a timely way, given that uh, at the other end of the terminal in Prince they're already building. Uh, the LNG facility that will accommodate that uh, that large amount of natural gas coming from the interior of British Columbia.
0: Uh, we understand that construction on this uh, has resumed today, so it is business as usual along the construction route?
4: I would think it's business as usual. There is obviously some uh, security for those who are doing the work. Uh, they're not really into the major part of the territory from what I can understand. Uh, So it would, uh, you know, obviously there is not a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, opportunity, I think, for further disruption. Uh, I don't see it stopped anything across Canada today as far as pop up protests are concerned. And again, we're really only dealing with uh, what is sort of rumored to be something of an agreement along the lines of uh, recognition of the hereditary chiefs, uh, which kind of uh, is interesting, given that the majority of them already supported the pipeline, did not support the protests. And, of course, the band leaders themselves and members of those councils had all voted unanimously in favor. And that's the councils themselves, the elected officials, had already voted in favor of this pipeline. So I'm not exactly sure what we're doing here. Uh, certain groups of people um, and uh, a very small, definitive group of people that are uh, you know, really determined to kill this pipeline, uh, as well as others.
0: Uh, So we really know nothing about this agreement because it has to go out to others for consultation first. Uh, It appears that it's a tipping point or groundbreaking in some way, but more so in regard to how uh, business is done in the future. Does that have anything to do or will this have anything to do with the pipeline issue? Because, again, this all started with blockades over this issue and the pipeline. So where does this leave the Coastal gasoline pipeline?
4: Well, I think it's still in very much up in the air, uh, even though it's received all the approvals, has the legal authority to proceed, uh, notwithstanding all of the machinations uh, and what has happened over the past week where you have uh, a number of other groups hijacking uh, and misrepresenting uh, what this uh, particular pipeline and project is all about, something that goes to the, you know, the entire benefit Of of, of the various bands and councils uh, along the route, Uh, and these are uh, benefit agreements that uh, that stay in perpetuity as far as the uh, as long as the pipeline should last, as long as there's a need for natural gas. So, you know, I I would expect that uh, uh, there's probably going to be further opposition. But again, we don't really know what was in that that uh, that agreement. We have sort of ideas of what it was in it, but had very little to do with whether or not they've given any permission or so-called, quote-unquote, consent. Uh, And this, of course, can be a very small group of people, five of 13, uh, even after they've got rid of the three women hereditary chiefs who happened not to to agree with them. Hmm. Uh, I don't think we're any further uh, down the road to uh, resolving this as far as uh, the building is concerned, but the building has to proceed one way or another.
0: Um, has this separated because, again, this started as a pipeline issue and then morphed into the greater discussion of land rights and title and such. And it seems that that's the portion of this this, that is being discussed right now. Does this separate those who were using the Wet'suwet'en community? Uh, as uh, uh, riding on their coattails to deliver the anti-pipeline message, considering the majority of the Wet'suwet'en community wants this pipeline. Does this finally clear that message a little bit more?
4: Not at all. Or does it not? a simple excuse. Uh, Of course, what we're really talking about are people committed to shutting down any building of any pipeline anywhere in Canada. And, of course, the federal government has done its due diligence as far as uh, ragging the puck. We saw that certainly with Frontier Tech. Uh, Last week, um, and many other projects, which I think are online, because if you can't get the pipeline to get any product, any mining product to market, uh, you might as well not bother with the idea of uh, mineral extraction or oil and gas extraction. Uh, No, this is spring training. This had uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline began in earnest in in British Columbia uh, prior to uh, the coastal gas link. Uh, You would have seen that same protest using other... Uh, indicators and, and justifications and excuses to uh, to attack that. So that's coming next. This is sort of just a uh sample of what's uh, what's in store uh as uh, Canada permits uh lawlessness uh and uh you know the rule of law to be floated simply because someone has an excuse and has a disagreement. And of course you have uh you know a rather um, you know weak, vacuous response by the Canadian government to what constitutes uh uh, anarchy or terrorism. Um, so it's okay to go and set fire to trains and uh, other buildings across the country. Uh, you get a pass as long as it's about woke climatism.
0: Where does this leave the Trans Mountain Pipeline? I mean, in the water. you know, uh, will these protests obviously repeat themselves as it continues? And we own sure. it. So it's already paid for. It's, it's not like whether we're deciding it or not. We've already bought it. <laughs>
4: your prime minister doesn't really care he doesn't want the thing built either he wants to phase out he wants to uh you know remove canada from production of oil sands. he certainly demonstrated that he doesn't have to do it necessarily directly he just has to make sure that he delays this thing long enough and of course no objective uh it is after all your money my money uh, not their money and uh It seems that, uh, you know, uh, yeah, they give all the right signals uh, to uh, mollify and appease certain people in this country. But, you know, Scott, you and I have talked about this, uh, I'm going to say, more than a dozen times. And I've come to the same conclusion more than a couple dozen times uh, that uh, this pipeline isn't going to get built until there's a new uh, majority conservative or other government other than the progressive parties that are basically doing everything they can to stop oil and natural gas production in this country. Uh, as they try to reach out for that very nebulous, very dangerous, very ruinous uh, net zero carbon pledge for 2050. They have no plan. They have no idea how they're going to achieve it. But uh, uh, they're willing to uh, sacrifice everything for uh, for very little in the way of uh, nothing more than a nice pat on the back and a nice little tap on the head. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I think the government has only one focus and that's to get... Uh, the non-permanency on the uh, UN Security Council. Why that's worth billions of dollars in our international reputation and uh, our financial hmm. wherewithal is beyond me.
0: Um, we, we were just talking with a, a political science professor from uh, uh, University of Ottawa, and uh, she said she 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 was convinced that there no, none of these projects are ever going to get built. Uh, nobody wants them, as she put it, and the oil is dropping in price. I've heard that many times, but yet um, the message seems to be going out that, you know, this industry's imploding onto itself because oil is dropping in price. That message uh, seems to be overpowering the other message that uh, oil prices will still continue to rise in the world and that if they're not building these projects here,
4: they're building them somewhere else. Um, well, let's understand the Ottawa bubble, because I've heard many people who come and from hail from that part of the world. They're part of the uh, what it was referred to as the Laurentian elite. Uh, they're not interested in talking about uh, what sustains an economy, like oil revenues. And when you allow and prevent the building of pipelines to get your product to market, of course there's going to be a discount. But these are the intellectual vandals and academic vandals who play this uh, cute game of uh, Uh, speaking from both sides of their mouth. And uh, I've seen it. I spent 18 years as a parliamentarian. I saw nonsense like that before. And I was quick to call it uh, then. I'm calling it now. So whether you're a journalist or an academic, you hail from the Ottawa area, this is your your mantra. Ask who pays them and how they're paid and who's funding them on the side, what organizations they belong to. Because at the end of the day, uh, anybody who who spends a bit of time looking at this will say, well, the reason Canadian oil is so heavily discounted, especially heavy oil, is because there's no pipeline access, and why is that important? Well, Venezuela, the traditional suppliers of heavy oil, Iran, Venezuela, and Mexico are all through various you know problems of their own and sanctions, not able to produce oil, heavy oil, and so the world is short of heavy oil, and it desperately needs it. The Americans, who are largest uh, consumer of heavy oil, especially in the U.S. Midwest and the Gulf Coast, love Canadian heavy oil, and they've invested billions of dollars because you can do more with it, and you can get more products from it, higher end products, all the way down to the diesels and other uh, necessary uh, fuels uh, for the future. Uh world demand for oil is going up, not down. So it's a con job. That's why. That's why I
0: thought it was kind of odd for their, her to say that it? that it was. It was uh, Genevieve Tellier, professor yeah. of uh, political stu- studies at University of Ottawa. Well, maybe they should stop
4: the politics and start dealing with the facts. Uh, and well, and use the, tech, and use the tech, and use
0: the, and use the tech mine cancellation as another example, and basically said, you know, it, there's no money to be made there. That's why they're pulling out. And the fact that uh, we haven't come to some sort of climate change agreement between the province
4: and the. Oh, uh, uh, there you go. So that's the thing. I mean, I, I'd love to debate people like that because frankly they. I don't know what they're talking about and of course they have a bias and they have an angle we all have angles and not biases my bias is making sure there's a bloody enough money in this country to make, make make sure we have our social programs at work that we get good canadian oil to markets that desperately want it and if anybody had any doubt as to the kind of nonsense these people purvey they've allowed a monster a frankenstein to be created and they've opened up the bloody pandora's box now we're attacking natural gas even some of the most ardent of climate folks, no natural gas is the solution to getting a lot of countries off coal. So, look, uh, phonies like that with a PhD, uh, which my grandfather used to call Paul, high and dry, is no substitute for honesty and facts. And I would uh, quickly call out any professor who's trying to pervade that kind of nonsense because it's Ottawa bubble. And frankly, it's staggering that people uh, take the time to actually think that that's uh, in any way or shape or form credible. We'd like to uh, entertain uh, some facts to that uh, professor because obviously she doesn't know what she's talking about.
0: I, I, I often find it uh, odd to the discussion when Quebec is, is often the first to say, take the barricades down, take the barricades down because we need propane. So um, there they are are hauling tank car after tank car after tank car of propane by a diesel locomotive and yet don't want anything to do with the pipeline. Yeah. It, just, it just, to me, you know, they're the first ones to cry when they're not getting their propane, yet they don't want a pipeline. Well, it's like worse. this could all be alleviated with a pipeline.
4: <laughs> and worse, have no problem cash- cashing in a $13.5 billion annual check in equalization that comes from those areas of the country that provide the kind of finances not, they're not just good for the regions, but also good for the national government and really are the at the main cornerstone of how we're able to equalize and to balance each other's uh, needs as a country so we remain united coast to coast. Look, elites, academics and politicians who play to the soothing music are creating disaster and they're really playing with the future of the country. And I think they had best realized it's not just the political stability. It's the financial viability of this country that's at stake. Is I mean, it? Is it want- the
0: indigenous community, though, Dan, that's now with this issue, exposing being- this? Because yeah. at the end of the day, it's the indigenous community that's losing all of these jobs.
4: You know, one of the best guys on this is uh, the leader the community that uh, got rid of the Indian Act. They want opportunity. They yeah. want to build yeah. parks. They want to build infrastructure. And they don't want to have to depend on a welfare check from Ottawa. Yeah. Unlike the folks who are academics and politicians in Ottawa who do depend on those welfare checks or social security, what they're really doing is talking against their own interests because when the government of Canada no longer has the ability to make ends meet, watch your interest rates rise, watch the country start to move in a different direction. Don't pay Quebec. It's a $13 billion, uh, you know, uh, what we call vin, what I call a bribe. Uh, <laughs> I say it in French because I am French and I can damn well say it. Uh, watch how quick it will uh, be before you start seeing separate signs coming up and up again. You can't have it both ways, or as my father would have said. You can't suck and blow, and that's exactly what they
0: do. doing. Mm. Uh, what about the Prime Minister on all of this? How does he package this as a win? What What happens in the next few days? Because even if this situation that's going on out west is resolved, it still has nothing to do with the pipeline issue.
4: Well, no, and, you know, the Times tick-tock, Times are wasting. Now, I would actually challenge my Liberal friends, both in Parliament and those who are Cabinet Ministers, to well take into consideration something that they know deep down to be the truth and that starts from our deputy prime minister who actually probably has a little bit more of an interest in brains when it comes to these things um, all the way down to most cabinet ministers they are absolutely apoplectic scared to death that the decision to yank all of these projects is now leading many of our debt bondholders with no choice but to say folks uh, you have to raise interest rates Uh, because, frankly, your country doesn't have the means to attract anything from around the world. Now, you saw the PM coming out saying, oh, you had an increase in foreign direct investment to 14%. Yeah, what he didn't tell you is that we only have the uh, data from the first half of 2019. Canada got $46 billion coming into it from foreign uh, uh, entities. In the first half of 2019, $71 billion left. That's not according to our dishonest stats can. That's according to the OECD. So they tend to take their numbers uh, because they tend to reflect. Uh, they don't have a bias. They've got no skin in the game. Uh, the fact is you've lost $25 billion net. In the first half of 2019. My God, could you imagine, since the decisions on tech, no movement on Trans Mountain, concerns about coastal gas link? Uh, could you imagine now, of course, what's happening with respect to uh, a government that seems to think that there's billions of dollars around to invest in windmills? Yeah, there is. If you, as a taxpayer and ratepayer here in Ontario, are prepared to continue to subsidize $5 billion a year to keep your hydro rates in check because of stupid decisions done by the same group of people running your country.
0: Will we see more blockades in the next week or so, do you think? Um, or is well, that, it is that all subsided?
4: It, yeah, I mean, the blockades aren't going to end, uh, because everybody's got uh, got the idea that uh, it's okay to blockade, and that's called civil disobedience, when in fact it's nothing could be could be further from the truth. It's in fact acts of anarchy and vandalism and economic sabotage. But uh, they've had their appetite wet. The Prime Minister refused to act. He refused to uh, get involved directly. Uh, and, of course, he's going to use this agreement with the Wetsuits and to suggest that everything's fine. In fact, what he's done is he's opened up a Pandora's box. And much like his father complained about Brian Mulroney back 30 years ago, young Mr. Justin Trudeau, your prime minister, has opened up the Pandora's box. And now, of course, the Sorcerer's Apprentice can't damn well close it.
0: Uh, joining us has been Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, Canadians for Affordable Energy, a draft agreement in place Uh, Over the weekend between hereditary chiefs and the government, but that does really not involve the uh, coastal gas link pipeline at all. It'll be interesting to see how those debates move forward. Dan, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott.